Welcome again. So we're going to talk about vision today. And I wonder if we should have, uh, so Chris, you're leading this one. So do you, do you want to start us off with uh, your thoughts and research and any fun bits about vision? Sure. Um, so when I looked at this, primarily I was looking at the pathway for the visual system. Um, when you look at something and light enters the eye, um, basically what will happen is, is there will be an upside down image that's on the retina of the eye. So it'll be at the back. In actual fact, you look at something and we see it upright, but on the back of the retina, it projects upside down. Um, now, just to ask you guys, knowing what we know about neuroscience and how things would usually go, where do you think that an image would actually project in terms of within the retina, on the outer layer or the inner layer? Um, sorry, can you, which, which image, um, can you repeat the question? Sure, no problem. So when you're going through the visual pathway and you've yeah. looked at something, light has entered the eye and it's hit the back of the retina. Now, from that point, do you think it would have more impact or work with the inner layer of a retina or the outer layer of the retina? So when you say inner layer, do you mean the layer that's closest to the fluid in the eye or closest to the back of the eye? Uh, the closest to the uh, back of the eye. The way that it's explained is that the retina has um, many different layers that have cells on it. Mm -hmm. Now, the image, when you look at something, goes to the back of the eye, projects on the retina, goes to the photoreceptors, which is the outermost layer. Um, it goes through the uh, two different layers of cells to the visual cortex, uh, which is called a striate cortex, if I pronounce that properly, mm -hmm. um, or it's also just known as a V, and that's where your analysis of what you're looking at is actually processed. Mm -hmm. so the, way that it's, the way that it's explained, let's say that you're looking at the picture of a dog. You don't know that that's a dog until it's gone through the visual processing. Mm -hmm. And you have known or learned already what a dog is and what a dog looks like. So when you look at that dog, it comes back and you think, oh, it's a dog. But we don't actually realize that all of that process is happening until you actually study it like we're doing right now. Correct, right. So <clears throat> that's part of visual. Um, I find you know, it actually... Point, go ahead. I find it really interesting to hear you talk about this. And to be honest, it's giving me a better appreciation for how you, Chris, are learning neuroscience because... Um, as soon as you started talking, I was like, I brought up the the diagrams in my mind and I started thinking, oh, we need a diagram for this. And mm -hmm. then it occurred to me that you, you don't have those same diagrams. And so you're trying to understand all this from an auditory perspective. And it's, um, it's challenging for me. I'm, I'm, do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, for our listeners, I am totally blind myself. Um, I've been studying neuroscience here and there since 2017. Uh, I do it by way of tactile uh, diagrams such as the brain, um, as well as auditory, as Mandy has pointed out, um, and actually the observation of um, a brain itself, which was very, very fascinating. Um, but back to quickly our discussion about uh, the cortex. Um, the cortex is within what's called the exhibital lobe of the brain. Mm -hmm. And it is pointed out that if you were to look at a brain in your hand, a human brain, you'll actually not be able to see the entire cortex because it's buried within the brain. So I just wanted to point that out because 
we talk a lot about eye conditions. Um, we talk about the cones and the rods, which is responsible for the light and color. Um, but we really don't know what any of that means because when we go for an eye exam, we're just told what we're told and then we deal with it accordingly. Do you guys have any comments on any of that? Yeah, actually, um, I'm glad you bring that up too because it really shows um, the distinction and the complexity both of our visual system because we have, to us or to the general populace, I would say um, vision is all of it is in, in the eyes. And some of it, of course, it is in the brain too. But um, I think when you really research and when you really look at the literature and all the information that we do know, you can really gain a better appreciation for all the processing that happens after that light hits the retina and that information is initially received in the eyes. So all the processing that happens um, in the primary visual cortex, um, well, all of that together is what forms our vision. It's not just in the eye. So um, I think that's very important. I just eye is just a part of it. It's all the it's all the sensory information. It's like I would say, if I was using an analogy, I would say the eye is like the grocery store when you go to the grocery store picking up all the ingredients for a recipe, and then um, you coming home to actually make that dish, and the final presentation is what the Primary, cort um, primary visual cortex does. Yeah, that's right. And it all works together because when you're reading about that, um, you have to actually process what that is saying. You have to make sure that you see it. And sometimes you may think you see something, yeah. but it's not actually what it is. You look back at it again for confirmation and get a full confirmation of what that actually is. And sometimes you see that you haven't seen it as yeah. what you thought you have. Yeah, definitely. So because perception, um, perception is very different. Mm -hmm. And um, when, I was, when I was researching the things I was looking at, uh, perception and um, illusions too, a lot of it is, um, it's, well, <laughs> I guess you can use this phrase more than what meets the eye. Um, a lot of it is con uh, contextual to our our vision. Um, it's based on context, depending on what we're seeing, what we're what we fo what we're focused on, and what's around it um, helps us formulate what we're looking at exactly. For an, it's um, like it's hard to do without, I guess, um, a diagram or a visual aid. But I, I'll try to explain it as best as I can. If you're looking at something, uh, let's say like a chessboard and there's an object projecting the shadow onto that chessboard. <laughs> to you, um, you know where the shadow is being projected, even though the white blocks look gray to you, your brain, because it has, because it knows from prior experience that those blocks are white, yes. to, you will perceive those just as the same as the other white blocks that are not under that shadow. And when you were yes. to remove that shadow, you could tell that um, that was actually gray block, but it's how we perceive that. It's how we how we look at the surrounding imaging or look at the surrounding things that are around that image. And then we come to the conclusion, okay, well, this tile is white or this tile <laughs> is not white. Yeah. And it's actually, it's interesting that you brought up illusions because um, in the actual biopsychology textbook, that we use to study for the neuroscience courses. Um, mm -hmm. It has a sort of a case study about somebody who has migraines. And mm -hmm. they're able to actually detect that a migraine headache is coming on because of something called a fortification illusion, which basically is like a, a horseshoe-shaped kind of a thing that comes up in the eye and it has different colors and whatnot. And that's how the person is actually able to detect. So you see there the migraine headache, but it's actually affecting, you know, the vision and what that person's seeing, even though it's directly not something with the eyes. Oh, that's um, that's really interesting because that I guess um, shows how different areas of the brain, um, even though there's a specialized functions, there's also a localization of function where 
different areas of the brain are communicating with each other. And in this case, I guess the migraine or the onset of the migraine, something is triggering um, that, per that person's brain to provide them with those, um, whatever you said, the ho or the horseshoe or the colors um, yeah. for them to see that. And even though it might be indifferent, there's no, there's no visual input. There's no input that we're looking directly from our eyes, but there's certain areas of brain that are being, that are communicating with our visual cortex in that case, which is telling us, or which is giving us the perception of, oh, I see something. And this is. Well, that would be a combination of top down and bottom up processing, wouldn't it? For you to be able to perceive a message or sorry, an object. Yeah, vision is definitely both uh, top down and bottom up. Because the, the input, the light coming into our eyes is yeah. all bottom up. And then what, how we make sense of that and how we come to the conclusion of, oh, this is a bottle or this is a table or this is a laptop in front of me. Mm -hmm. Now, we have to have a bit of an appreciation too for actual light in itself. Um, <clears throat> generally speaking, if we're let's use class or during the day or anything like that, um, we have a lot of light, so we're able to pick up uh, objects fairly easily. When you're under a dim illumination, your pupils actually have to dilate so that you're able to take in that image better because there's not as much light that has to reflect. So the pupils actually have to overcompensate for that light that's missing. So you can look at it from two different ways. Uh, and the light actually really does play a big role in, you know, how you, how you see and what you see. You think about it, you try to walk around the room in the middle of the night. There's no lights on, it's dark outside. What can you see? You have to get up and turn the light on, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that's how important light is to the physician. Yeah, I agree. It's like, of course, it's absolutely crucial. Not only just the iris, um, it it dilating or it contracting, but just how light interacts with um, the retina and the cells, um, the photoreceptors. You know, how light hits the back of the eye, and then how those signals are sent to uh, the ganglion cells, or sorry, the bipolar cells, and how they pass on that information. It's all because of light hitting the back of the retina. It's all because of light um, making those cells fire is in a certain way, in a certain uh, pattern, which allows yeah. us to see anything or for, for the information to even be passed down from the bipolar cells to the ganglion cells, down to the optic, and then to the back. Now, Mandy, you mentioned something about um, color that was kind of interesting. Yeah, in terms of... Um, my own personal color, like um, what I, I believe you had mentioned something about different colors at one point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was something that I noticed uh, a long time ago that uh, when I'm looking, so I was on, I was on the ice when I was playing hockey and um, at practice and I, I noticed, and so it's very white, like the, the arena is very brightly lit and the ice is very white, obviously. And so it's a very bright space. And I noticed that I was like rubbing one eye and I closed the so one I closed and the other eye was still open. And I noticed that it was um, different when I then did the reverse and opened the other eye and closed the first one. And what was different was the, the, the pink and green tones in each eye. So I was seeing more um, reds and pinks out of the left eye. Um, I think it was that, I can't remember. I'm trying to do it right now. Yeah, I think it's more reds and pinks out of the left eye and then more greens out of the right eye. And um, what was interesting about that was, oh, sorry, I think, that was me. Did you hear that beeping? Okay, never mind. Just one second. Just give me one second. Uh, can you hear me again? Okay. Yeah. So what was interesting about that was just 
that I didn't know why that was the case. And, and I so I started testing this and I found out that it was the case. Like it was true that I see more reds in one eye and more greens in another eye. And I was trying to figure out what the reason for that was. And so what I came up with in my research, uh, like just reading about the retina more, was that it probably had to do with the ratio of my cones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so cones are the photoreceptors that are picking up the different wavelengths that colors emit. So we have um, cones that are primarily sensitive or more sensitive to um, blues and ones that are more sensitive to reds and ones that are more sensitive um, to greens and and yellows being in there as well. Um, and so it, uh, it made me realize that I probably have a different ratio of uh, red sensitive cones compared to green sensitive cones in each of the eyes. And so I literally was physically detecting more reds in the environment in one eye and more greens in the other eye. Um, and I, part of what was interesting to me about this was just the thought that I had back when I was a kid was, you know, why do we like, why do certain people like different colors and why do we have color preferences and do we all see the same? And mm-hmm. so I, you know, I can never know what any of you have seen or not seen and you you have no idea what I've seen and if the world looks the same to me as it does to you and yet I had this one little experience with my own body where one eye felt different than the other and I realized that maybe maybe there are different experiences like maybe the reds that some of you see or have seen in the past are different than the reds I've seen you know or the or the world is more rose colored for some people and more green colored for other people. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you pull that up because uh, there was a point in time where I did have minimal vision, um, but yeah, there was problems with the yeah there was problems with the cones and the rods, and so I basically had to wear dark, like red tinted glasses during the day all the time because of the light sensitivity. Mm. Um, I also knew the colors at one point too, but it was interesting to see because if I had glasses on and I looked at a yellow yellow was actually lighter than what the yellow was if I removed the glasses. Mm. Um, and same thing with pinks, greens, uh, oranges, and I think red actually looked lighter than what it was. Mm. So when you put stuff in front of, let's say, whatever normal functioning means to you, what you see again and what you perceive based on that, should be very different than what it actually is. Right. Um, Chris, I'm glad you mentioned something about glasses because um, so back in September, I went for an eye exam and um, I recently got um, glasses for just driving or if I'm sitting in the back of class. So something that I noticed while I was driving with glasses on versus when I had them off or even in general, when I was trying to look at things um, that were in a distance the hue or, or the tint, I guess you could say. When I had my glasses on, um, the tint was not really there, but when I had taken them off, there was a slightly, I don't know how to exactly put it, but greenish blue tint. Hmm. Um, it's very, the difference is very slight. It only lasts for me for about, I would say a second or two. And within that time, the brain adjusts. Um, and then I can't see it anymore. But I noticed that, and uh, that was very fascinating. So I was thinking if that has to do something, well, I'm, I'm sure uh, a bit of both, but was it something to do just with my eyes of how, since the light is coming through a lens before it hits my eye now. So the, fo- the focus of that light, is it has it been slightly shifted so that my uh, cones are perceiving that light in a different way or is that light being focused into my eye in a different way because it's passing through a lens now or is it something to do with um the actual processing that's happening in the visual cortex or a bit of both so yeah I'm glad you mentioned that and I've, I've been thinking about that too that's a really good example 
that um, highlights the difference that Chris kind of basically brought up at the very beginning, which was that vision isn't just in the eye. Um, mm -hmm. It is all these other, it's this whole system of where we're processing and what our, our sort of memory or our conscious awareness of, is of the, the vision that we're having. Um, and in that example, my first guess is that it would be at the level of the eye. So it really, it, it was how the light was being um, directed into or to the back of the retina as opposed to the learning of it or like the conscious awareness of it. Um, I'd have to think that through, but that's my first guess. Yeah, it's interesting to see. I did do some uh, research on um, some fairly common eye conditions. It seemed like a lot of this direction was going uh, towards the retina and whatnot. So one of the ones that's very common is retinitis pigmentosa. Um, and then there's another one that's fairly well known, especially for people as they age, which is called macular degeneration. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this, but basically there's problems in the, the, the eye and the macula. And actually, this is an eye condition that can affect both eyes, but it affects both eyes differently. Mm. So Sorry, you, you can have... Sorry, Chris, could you... Sorry, go ahead. That's all. I'm sorry, you're cutting out quite a bit. Oh, I was going to say, could you just repeat the name of the condition? <clears throat> the one I just, it was macular degeneration. Okay, all right, go ahead. Um, I think so, it's also, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say, so those are a couple of the fairly common uh, eye conditions that you see. Um, macular degeneration is one as you get older. Um, Retinitis pigmentosa is could be uh, over the lifespan. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. Like you know, we we know. Um, I mean, those are those are much more common uh, conditions than what we would see in the cortex that could also affect um, vision. Like for example, you know, I mean, Chris, you mentioned the visual cortex. Um, and, and I'm sure I mentioned this in class, but there's, you know, the, the various regions of the, the visual cortex are devoted to processing very specific information at the primary cortex level. So we've got areas that are specifically processing color. We've got areas that are specifically processing line orientation um, and specifically processing motion. And those, you know, at the level of the primary cortex, those haven't been integrated back into the conscious awareness of the image. It's just um, each of those sort of uh, decompartmentalized, or sorry, at that point, compartmentalized pieces of our vision. And so it, as an example of how important that distinction is, is that we could have damage in an area that is processing motion, and then we lose the ability to see things moving in space. Uh, which would be a problem when we're like pouring a glass of water or crossing a street trying to pick up the uh, motion of a car coming towards us. And then on the other area, you know, we could also have an area that's damaged that is the processing of the color. And if that's damaged, then we our world becomes gray as, as opposed to having any color. And it's not the same as like a color blindness mm -hmm. where you mix up red and green and blue and yellow, which happens in the retina, this type of la lack of color, so that kind of color blindness is at the brain level, at the cortex. Um, and, the, and I don't know that people really appreciate, people don't generally don't appreciate that there's these two levels of, of the, the whole visual system. Uh, professor, um, can I then? Sorry, Chris, go ahead. I was just going to say, and that's what I was uh, saying about um, people may go to the doctor or whatever and have their eyes tested once a year and know they have particular conditions, and a doctor explains it to them, but unless you kind of have an understanding, even at a basic level, of how this processing works, it's kind of language that's a different language. Um, so just, I just want to, I will, I have a question and then I have a follow-up 
um, to what you said, Professor. So question about um, disruption in, uh, in the processing of motion. So um, do you know exactly what, if someone had that condition, what they would be seeing? Is it, is it going to be something like that they see frames? Um, or Apparently, yeah, that's, that's what the claim is, yeah. Like seeing stop motion kind of? Yep. Because I, I can see how that would um, like really interrupt like, you know, mo the most basic functions that like, you have to do or daily things that you have to do versus something like losing all color, which is still um, not something that you, I'd like to experience. But if my motion or my processing of motion was interrupted, um, that would be quite hard. So yeah. And uh, another thing um, that I wanted to say was um, um, prosopagnosia uh, would be a great example of um, just what you were talking about right now. Um, it's not just um, in the eyes, it's uh, way deeper than that. It's, uh, it's all, it's in the brain too. So the, I believe it's the fusiform face area that if it's damaged, um, your ability to recognize faces um, gets disrupted. And um, there's cases, so I think that I was looking at a case study actually of a woman who was a firefighter and um, due to um, a work-related injury, she lost um, her ability to recognize faces. So, and th there's a whole documentary where she's taking pictures of her own mother. She takes a few Polaroid pictures and then she's presented with um, th um, three other Polaroid pictures uh, aside from her own mother's. And then just, just by looking at the face, she's unable to identify um, who that is. It, it goes as far as to show that like when sh she's shown her own face, she's not able to like as, as an image, she's unable to recognize it. But I, what, what I did find interesting was one of the images that she looked at, I think was Madonna's. And then she couldn't recognize her um, by the face, but she could tell by, by hair. Mm. So and I just wanted to like appreciate how specific it is that it's the facial structure, it's just the face. Um, it's just that area in particular that's affected. And our, our, even though our vision is completely perfect, we're still able to read, write, do everything else. We're unable to recognize faces in case of a damage to a specific area. There was even a, um, I forget, I think 67 year old person in Japan. Um, I think because of a, what is it called? It's a, because of a stroke. Um, the exact area, it was very specific. Usually with injuries, what happens is that a larger portion of the brain or surrounding regions of the area um, are damaged as well. So it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly where the problem is coming from or it's hard to study. But in this case, it was that his, um, it's very close to his uh, fusiform area that was um, affected by the stroke and he lost all ability to recognize even his own close family members Faces. So he could recognize them both um, by voice. He went to the doctor. He could recognize a doctor by voice, but he just couldn't tell uh, them by face. So I think that was there's very actually, interesting. There's actually a movie, one of the movie stars, the popular ones, um, that was talked about in one of our textbooks that has that. He, he will see you, and then he will go away. And if he saw you again, he doesn't recognize who you are. And, and I don't recall who it was. I'll look it up again and check because we discussed it in one of our classes. There's, um, I mean, that one might be a little bit different because there are, I mean, the case of HM um, and then also of Clive Waring. And I don't know, I usually show Clive Waring in my cognitive psychology class. I don't think I showed it to you all, but. Would be the pianist, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was a pianist who had, um, lost his so in those both of those situations um those weren't visual issues those yeah. were actually yeah. uh, memory problems which is also a nice distinction from the prosopagnosia that Ayaz brought up because that is in a lot of ways of it's not a memory thing um it's not that they don't have a memory of the person or of these faces it's that they can't recognize them and so it does seem more visual than memory-based. But Professor, do you think there's overlap there? Um, there's some sort of a little bit of overlap because um, 
See, I, this is this is uh, the trouble that I have with understanding this. If it's a specific area of the brain, which of course does communicate with other regions of the brain as well, part of it should be, like, part of it should be something to do with remembering too, right? Like, if I if I see your face, if my form area recognizes that face, and then it has to be drawing from somewhere to be like, well, okay, I've seen that face somewhere before, so that's yeah. it's drawing from my memory. In this case. If the, so see, this is what I'm not understanding. So is it that since that area is damaged, the memories are still there? But you can't retrieve them? Yeah, but you can't retrieve them because um, the retrieving method is interrupted. So in that case, if someone has that condition, um, are they still able to picture the faces of their loved ones? Um, I, that's a good question. I don't know if they could I my guess is that they can't picture the face of their loved ones either um yeah that's I don't I don't know for sure but my guess is that they can't picture them so Mm -hmm. that I I think you're right in that there's this there's obviously some kind of memory component Mm -hmm. but I but it's very different than just like forgetting who someone is yeah, because um, you're not really forgetting because you can still tell it's their voice. That's still like that's my vi- a wife um, because her voice sounds like this, or she smells like this, or she's this tall. So I can tell that's my wife, but I can't recognize her face. So, and and if that's happened after an injury or a stroke or something, then when I think about my wife, am I no longer able to? That's what I'm not able to understand. Like, am I no longer to picture her face when I'm? I mean, this is, so I don't know the answer, but it's also interesting because it raises another, um, I don't know, nuance about uh, vision that probably none of you covered in your research leading up to this, but the idea of visualization and the idea of being to mind pictures. And this is a skill that is used quite heavily in competitive athletes where they're uh, preparing for a competition and they're essentially practicing that the skill that they're doing whether it's taking um like shooting a basketball or shooting a puck or uh, doing run or going down the the slope or whatever it is and you're you're visualizing yourself doing that and we know that visualizing something activates a lot of the visual cortex um it doesn't activate other areas that you would expect to be activated if you're actually doing the, the activity. But, um, but when you're visualizing it, it activates a lot of the, the vision. And, there's, and we know that being able to visualize can also increase the performance. So, so literally seeing it in your mind. So my point was, I wonder if there's, like, there's, there's also individual differences in our ability to visualize things. Yeah. And so I wonder if, if someone who has a, a lack of ability to visualize or is on the lower end, are they more susceptible to some of these conditions where they couldn't recognize something like, you know? Wouldn't it have environmental components as well to it? What do you mean? Yeah, probably. So, what do you mean? Um, when they have a difficulty um, recognizing somebody's face, again, it could be due to the memory or lack of that we mentioned. But couldn't it be associated with the type of environment that you're trying to visualize the person in? So, I mean, I would know that certain friends I would never find at a church on Sunday with my my Nana. So that kind of narrows down who I would perceive a person to be, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. You can go by, uh, for example with me not having a vision and having vision at one point. Even though I do not have vision now, I can still picture. So if you were to say to me, sitting on the road is a four-door sedan, I know what that looks like. And I can still picture what it looks like. Um, Which would be maybe different than somebody who's never seen that or never had the opportunity to take it in in a tactile manner. Mm, so the right. processing of that would be completely different. Hmm. 
just to look at it in a different way. Yeah, and I almost I wonder if your ability to visualize, Chris, is better than other people's um, because you're taking in different senses. And I know even when we talk about visualization, like I do a lot of training with people to visualize mm -hmm. um, for various reasons in my coaching practice, and uh, we like there's always an emphasis on other sensory systems. So yes, you're seeing something in your mind, but bring in the smells in the space, bring in, you know, uh, bring in what you're hearing, uh, bring on what you're feeling. And so Chris, because you've um, really focused on those other sensory systems to understand something or to, you know, to visualize them, so to speak, I wonder if that's actually increased your, your, like cortical ability to visualize, even though you don't have the retina ability to visualize. Do you have, do you have any thoughts on that, or does that make sense? What I'm trying to say. It does, and it it is um, quite a possibility that that is the case. Now, I would visualize things, I guess, the way that I would have seen them before, um, and not with, with limited vision. So I might not have a perfect image of what something looks like, but I had enough and long enough of a time to sort of have that visual learning slash processing um, to be able to put those things together. And it, it depends too on how you're learning and what sort of tools you have to use. So for example, we talk about light. For me, because of the, the condition I had, the less light I had, the better. So you would see me working in a room using a closed-circuit television, which is a, a camera that has a TV on top. And you put your book underneath it. And the writing on the book enlarges up onto the screen mm -hmm. in the camera. And I would always use a white bettering on a black background, which would be completely different than someone who would be reading a book normally, right? But I've also read books, quote, normally, close quote, depending on size of print. So there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Mm -hmm. And I can still picture all those things. Wow. Um, I have a, a bit of a deviation question, because I know we talked about this last week as uh potentially researching this, but what about um, like hallucinations or um, any, you know, any sort of fabricated uh, visions that we might have? Did anybody dive into that? Um, I looked at um, illusions more so than hallucinations because um, I, I believe um, hallucinations would have been in the realm of either doing psychedelic drugs or having a certain type of condition. But um, it was pretty much um, what we talked about um, in the beginning of the episode, um, how there's more to it than just um, the, in the eyes. It's uh, uh, the illusions. A lot of it has to do with processing. Um, so to summarize it, and from what I found in my research is basically, um, evolutionarily speaking, um, there's always a lot of stimuli that we are surrounded by and that's being inputted. So to be efficient, um, we have come up with ways to not see everything accurately, but most efficiently um, so we can do our daily tasks, whatever it may be. So the, the illusions play, uh, they play on that. Um, they, they play on that rule, I guess. So let's just take something that was pretty popular a few years ago. I think we all remember the dress. The oh, black yes. Black yeah. Black and blue versus white and gold. By the way, what did everyone, what's, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, by the way, like, what did you guys see? I just want to know out of curiosity. Uh, I saw the gold and white <laughs> or yellow and white. I can't remember. I think I saw the blue and black, but just to let me back up for a second here because Chris probably doesn't, I don't know if you know what this was, but it was a, a few years ago, there was this video that was going around and 
who was asking people if they saw um, the dress, what color they thought the dress was. And there were two different ways of seeing the dress. It was that it was the same image. So everyone was watching the same video or picture of this. And it was uh, blue and black or white and gold. And this went viral because there'd be people saying it's blue and black, obviously. And other people would seeing it, see it as yellow and gold. And, uh, and people were just so confused as to why, uh, they were seeing something so entirely different than the other person. Um, a similar one. Did you hear about that? No, I never heard about that actually, but what I can kind of relate it to is not a video, but it's picture that we did in one of our classes and this picture we put up on the board and um the class was asked what they see in the picture what they took out of it so similar but a bit different yeah yeah basically so there now i'll let you go um yes i just wanted to back up for a second on that so laura you saw white and gold i think i saw blue and black um, yeah, I saw um, blue and black as well. Um, to this day, I think some people even reported at first seeing one color or one set of colors and then later on seeing different set of colors. So that had to do with um, pretty much what I mentioned before was context. Um, the reason why people were perceiving the dress as different colors was what they were assuming the context of that dress was, as in where the dress was placed. So the people who saw um, white and gold, for example, thought, um, or they assumed based on the lighting in the room that this this must be some sort of natural lighting or uh, sort of bluish lighting near a window or something like that. Um, whereas people who were seeing it as black and blue um, were assuming kind of a yellowish light, you know, more indoor lighting. Um, in a studio or something like that. Um, so it, it was all to do with how the brain is dry, uh, like deriving from past knowledge and previous, uh, previous encounters of uh, similar things. And then they're like, okay, well, this, depending on this context, depending on the light situation this dress is in, um, I think this is blue, blue and black, or I think this is white and gold. And I, the thing is that some people, as I mentioned before too, some people started seeing it differently later on, depending on um, what uh, device they viewed it on or the lighting or how bright or how lit that device was versus where they actually were. So that changed for people. So that, that kind of shows that it's not just in, um, in your eyes. It's a lot of, a lot of it has to do with, um, how you're interpreting things and how you're gathering information, making sense of that, and then processing it. Lauren, were you gonna say something about that? Oh, um, I actually found something related to what we've just been discussing. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of the integrative model of hallucinations. No. No. Um, so when I was looking up the causes of hallucinations, either through schizophrenia or um, substance abuse like LSD and MDMA, um, some researchers proposed this model of hallucinations where they stated that uh, spatial and object attentions uh, shape our sensory input, which interacts with what we expect to see. Um, and that is biased by, sorry, biased and influenced by our long-term memories of these visual contexts. And this can also trigger emotional responses. So that, that was kind of relevant to the situation of the dress where your, your, your attention um, on sensory input affects what you expect to see, influenced by long-term memories. And this, in combination with the top-down and bottom-up uh, processing, is what produces the image and might make some people see certain things while another person would see something else. Yeah, definitely. And um, um, I, I would like to save this for a later episode, um, but I do want to just quickly touch up on this because you men mentioned um, um, hallucinogens. So I guess if we can take shrooms, for example, a lot of people report seeing things on it or seeing what they needed to see, you know, um, great revelations or something. So even though you can characterize a lot of people's um, experience, they have similarities in them. What they see, a lot of what they see is um, 
very it, it can vary from person to person so and that has to do with um of course all the information on they've gathered throughout their life and all the things how they perceive certain things and how when they are on that certain drug how those um, perceptions are coming into play and how they're forming new images in our mind but i i want to <laughs> i guess i want to save that for a later topic or for a later episode so you can talk about those more you're just doing a little teaser there yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Any, uh, what are there, anything else um, super interesting that you came across in your prep for today? Anyone? I'll open up to, to any of you. The one thing I think we can talk about too, just kind of compare something a bit different is um, there was a section again in the biopsychology textbook, but that book I use for everything. Um, mm where they were talking about actually animals um, and the way vision is processed with them. Some animals have, if you look, their eyes are kind of more on the side, whereas other ones, their, their eyes are more on the front. So, you know, humans are humans and they are how they are, but it just it offered a bit of a different way because it started talking about infrared um, signals, and actually with that particularly, it was talking about rattlesnakes and how they they have a very they can see very long infrared signals. So it's again not to do with us, but just shows a bit of different way that vision is processed through other things. Um, I guess something interesting, um, it wasn't a major revelation or something, but uh, I just found it interesting, was that uh, differences in gender account for certain conditions that you may have or not have. So, for example, males are more more likely to have, um, or actually I, I believe are the ones who experience colorblindness because I think it's linked to it's linked to that sex chromosome or something like that. And um, there's another condition in women, I can't remember, and this is only present in women, the very rare condition where they're able to see about like 10,000 more colors or something like that because of um, having more than just a standard uh, red, blue, and green cone. Yes, I don't know what it's called, but that I, I discovered that when I was looking up stuff for my own retina and found that there's a lot of, not a lot, but there's in women, um, in some pop, subpopulations of women, they have an extra uh, cone uh, category that's sensitive to different colors. And so there's, uh, so again, they women would see differently than men, for example, or women with those extra cones would see differently from men. Mm. Which is also, I, can't, I mean, I like that. And even in conjunction with what Chris said that, you know, animals are seeing differently and we get, you know, we're so egocentric as, as humans that we forget how many different things are out there. And really the only thing our eyes are doing um, are receiving wavelengths and then processing that in the brain uh, with our, our memory and our, like our past learning of different things to create a story around it and create an experience around it. But, you know, we're only, we're only receiving a certain spectrum of what is out there to be received. Like our eyes just physically don't pick up everything. And even if you compare male, some females with, with males, you know, their spectrum is, is shifted if they've got this extra cone. And so, you know, it, it's, it broadens our perspective or it narrows our perspective, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah, for sure. I would love to see, um, I guess, well, I guess for us, it wouldn't really make a difference because I would have only have three cones. But I was going to say, I would love to see what kind of art they would uh, be able to create. But I guess they would be the only ones who would be able to fully perceive what they create because they're the only ones with that extra cone. So. Yeah. But still, it would be pretty amazing to see how they, or just, just, just even like presenting them with a with a picture or painting, all um, 
all the intricacies or all the things that we're missing, how they would be able to perceive that. Um, that would be pretty interesting to see. Yeah, and you know, one of the other bigger questions I think that can get addressed by understanding neuroscience is the differences um, like among people and and how we can we're, we are so, you know, I say egocentric, but not in like a negative way, but in a just like, this has been our experience. And so we, we don't know what it's like. So people who've happened to have this extra cone or whatever it is, um, they never knew that they were different. So, you know, until you somehow came across this like uh, knowledge, you would never know that other people didn't see all these colors. Like it might take you a long time. And I remember hearing an episode on CBC about um, synesthesia where you, um, I don't know if we covered this in neuroscience, but it's like the crossing over of senses. So for some people, as an example, they, um, they might see like numbers for them have colors. Like they see numbers in with colors. And whenever they see a number, there's the color that they have associated with it. Or they might have letters that have sounds associated with it. And so this is something that is not in everybody. Um, but then I remember on this CBC episode, they were talking about it and what they had was a call in. Um, and people were, there was a couple of people calling in and saying, I didn't know everyone didn't experience this. And they were having this profound awareness on this show because they didn't know other people didn't experience the world this way. And so if we don't share this knowledge about neuroscience and we don't study neuroscience, mm -hmm. we might be missing out on the differences, the, the beautiful, unique differences between us and other people, you know? Yeah, I think yeah. it'd be interesting to see too. Um, they talk about a lot of differences, even culturally. And this may be different and there'd be nothing about it, but could there be a difference based on where people are used to living and what kind of stuff they're used to watching out for? So somebody who might live in the wild, like not the wild per se, but not in a big city area, may have special attentions on certain things that somebody who's in the city doesn't because they're not used to those kinds of things. Yeah. Or stuff that they can pick out that would be in different detail than what somebody else. It'd be interesting to see that even, like I say, across cultures or this is one difference between males and females. Is there other? Mm -hmm. I think that would even, um, that would even be uh, an interaction, not just, uh, well, that would be an interaction between the environment and genes as well. If you're speaking just culturally um, on that point, like, let's say a certain culture was or a certain subgroup of people adapted to picking out the color white because they had to hunt bunnies um, as a source of food. Um, that over generations would be passed down as a trait that helps them in their survival. So they would be able to better pick certain things out and Partly because of because of culture, because uh, their practices require them to, and also add eventually genetically too, because that's a trait in that subgroup that is um, that is preferable, preferable or is needed for survival. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Lauren, do you have any um, final things that you want to talk about? Um. Not right now. I mean, I would be interested in um, looking more into the effects of drugs and what we see, like um, hallucinations associated with LSD, MDMA, and why if I take the same dose as I as that I might have different hallucinations than he would. I think it would be interesting in, to look at, at why he sees certain things and I wouldn't and vice versa. Um, I just have, I think, I guess, um, something that I would like to see in the future. And I don't know if this is going to be um, possible anytime soon or not, but um, it I actually dawned on me because of um, what you mentioned about something, someone who had vision at one point and then slowly loses it or loses it and how they're able to visualize things versus someone who's never had any vision 
is able to visualize things. So if there was, um, I guess we're far from it as, as of now, but if there was a way to project what we perceive objectively onto a digital screen through some sort of medium, um, I would love to see how those visualizations are different. Or even, and those are spe two specific um, groups, but even from person to person, how we mentioned, your red might be different from my red. Um, so being able to somehow, and I don't know what kind of scientific and technological advances we would need to do that, but if somehow we could project what you're seeing objectively onto a screen and we project what I'm seeing, and then we could compare it back, um, that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> they, they might come out with um, something at some point in time. There is a lot of new technologies mm -hmm. uh, coming out that even if you know people are interested in checking them out, I would encourage you to. Um, for example, somebody who has a smartphone can get uh, something called seeing AI. And it's like artificial intelligence mm -hmm. for people who can't see so that they can actually use their cell phone to pick up their surroundings. Um, yes. They have something else called eSight, which is, again, uh, vision that's not vision, but it allows someone who doesn't have vision to be able to pick different things out. So I think as science progresses, you might start to see a lot of different things. They have uh, retinal implants or cornea implants. They have different kinds of technologies coming out. So in the future, they may actually be able to depict these different things or come out with technology to be able to understand. Yeah, for sure. I, I, like for, I, for someone who can see to understand what someone who doesn't mm -hmm. actually sees. Yeah. Or, um, or how they pursue. Yeah, for sure. Because a lot of, um, like, even if we look at, like, 50 years ago or 60, 70 years ago, 100 years ago, a lot of these um, things that were fantasy or, you know, part of sci-fi, are now reality for us and, and the time that we're living. So I think, I think that's um, just in general, as humans, we are, we're great at conceptualizing things and then, and then putting them into action eventually, even if it would be half a century or a century down the line. So, and a, a lot of these ideas, cause I, I happen to be a pretty big sci-fi geek. Uh, I love those, those kinds of things like, so, a lot of these ideas that I get are from seeing sci-fi things. Like um, there was a, I'm not sure if you guys are aware. I'm pretty sure it's a pretty uh, popular show at this time. It's called Black Mirror. Um, so there was an episode um, of how they're able to record every single thing that they've seen from their perspective. So all their memories are recorded and they're able to go back and look at them. Um, so ideas like those, I'm not sure if it's going to be exactly that, but I'm like that. I have hope for the future and I'm very excited to see exactly what, how we implement these ideas that we're coming up right now as sci-fi into actual science, a reality um, 100 years from now or even later on into the future. Now, I just had a question with vision. Um, in terms of people interpreting their environments around them, if someone is blind, do we know what other sense is most important that kind of takes over to compensate for vision? Like, is it the ability to touch that's most important or or hear? Like, I just wonder in the case of like Helen Keller and stuff, if, if she was able to hear, would her visual experience be different if she still didn't have a sense of touch? I really think it depends on the individual person and what their preference is. Like, like their learning you've style? Probably heard, yeah, you've probably heard in the past um, people say that when one sense is weaker, the other senses are heightened. Mm -hmm. And that may or may not be the case. But a lot of people still have a different learning style. Mm -hmm. So for somebody, it might be fine for them to, to take a book and look at something and read about it, and they're just fine. Mm -hmm. I'm a very tactile learner. So mm -hmm. when I talk about the brain model and things like that, that stuff to me to be able to feel that and visualize what it might look like, that's my way of learning. 
And Mandy can tell you because in class she had tactile something all the time. Mm -hmm. I remember that. So that, that's me. And again, everybody could be different, no different than somebody who's, who's sighted. Okay. I feel like as with every topic we could go on and I've got a lot of, uh, you know, ideas about this. There's so many different directions that we could take and, mm -hmm. um, or could have taken, but this was, this was great. I am, I'll admit, I'm still thinking about what I said about, you know, capturing what people are seeing or what, you know, what they're experiencing. Cause I, I still think as much as like virtual reality has advanced I don't know I can't think of examples of where we actually like we can project experiences to people but I don't know of any good examples where we're taking someone's inner experience and showcasing it for another person I, I, I don't know if anyone has any examples of that but I feel like we're really far from the ability to do that and I don't know does anyone have any examples of that? I can't think of any. Yeah, as of as of now, I'm not aware of any objective projections or objective displays of an individual's experience. I think because um, that would be pretty hard too. Because um, right now we're just only talking about vision, so there's a lot of other there's other senses, traditional ones, anyways, and um, our, we rely on multiple things to you know, perceive what we call reality. So to to arrive at a conclusion or to arrive at at that destination where we're able to project our experiences as objective experiences or, or as as for someone to see it objectively, I think um, it would take a lot of, and this is where it starts, but it would take a very deep understanding of not only vision or not only um sound but just a complete understanding of the brain for us to be able to get there and exactly. uh, I'm sure making, yeah i'm sure we're making progress towards that um but yeah i, I can't wait to see what the future holds that's all i can say yeah. i think for well, right now probably the best thing is really if you want to look at uh research things going on or things that we're studying I, I think the interview is really probably the best look inside right now. Besides actually spending time with somebody who's in the experience, lived the experience, mm -hmm. and just if they're open to answer questions, just ask them questions. That's a first-hand account. Yeah. So yeah. if you're sitting with me while I'm observing the brain, mm and you say to me, that's such and such component, what does it feel like to you? Then it's, a, it's my perspective of it. You're getting it, how I'm seeing it, my experience. Yeah. I read about the brain and it says it's like a coconut. Mm -hmm. Well, I can kind of picture what a coconut is, but in a sense I can picture what it looks like mm -hmm. in the form that it's showing. Yeah. So... First, first-hand observation or accounts or whatever right now is probably the best thing over technology. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah, I do agree. Um, I agree with that to a certain extent. I think, um, I think it would be, I guess, if we were to look at it as an iceberg, I think that would be the tip that's above the water, and everything else that is to follow from, you know further research would be the rest of the iceberg because even though even though this is the best account that we have right now to just interview someone and get their perspective there's still too much subjectivity and that's what i believe there's still too much subjectivity there because that's your subjective experience that you're explaining to me how you perceive and then i'm perceiving that information from my own lens so I'm understanding what you think you understand that you're explaining to me, and then I interpret that, and then I make sense of that. So um, in that in that in that exchange, I think there's a lot of room for error and um, 
objectivity is lost, which which is to be which is to be expected. Um, yeah. We can't completely ignore subjectivity, of course, because it's important. But um, as far as arriving at an, at an objective truth or an objective experience, I think um, yeah, it definitely it definitely starts there. Okay. And experience, experiences can be very different between two people. You can have two people that don't have any vision who are exploring the same diagram or tactile diagram or model or whatever the case, and they'll come up with two completely different perceptions of what that is. Mm-hmm. But I think you should be the guy to work on that. What do you think? You should be the technology guy. <laughs> maybe maybe one day we'll see that maybe we'll, one day we will be able to see exactly exactly what the difference between me and my friend is when we see a movie or when we see that red apple how red it is I'm to wait that. for it yep. <laughs> okay, let's, that's a good end of the the vision topic uh so good job thanks everyone for sharing all your wonderful insights uh, pun intended insights. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, topic, uh, Professor, personally, I, I had a lot of fun with this one, um, especially this discussion. I thought, um, I, I found it pretty challenging, just the research itself. Um, this is a pretty broad topic and it is, um, vision is pretty complex, but just when I, when I actually started researching and looking into it, more so than the knowledge that I gained, I gained a better appreciation for how complex it is and how for granted we take it, but at the same time, how beautiful it is. So, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was moved. And this discussion, I think it, it, it left me with a lot of information and a lot of knowledge, but it left me with even more questions that I hope to explore for myself and to explore with others. And uh, I hope the same for everyone else too. That's great. Okay, come research with me whenever you want. That's <laughs> good, man. Okay. 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 Well, I will talk to you all soon and have a good rest of your week. Yeah, you as well, Professor. Take okay. care. Thanks, guys. I guess we'll talk in two weeks on here again. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.